Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am so excited because I have two guests today, and they're both very good looking. The first is Dr. Catherine Walker, who is Senior Clinical and Scientific Director for Palliative Care with MedStar Health and an Associate Professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Mallard Davis, who is Director of Palliative Services with Geisinger Health System. Welcome both Dr. Walker and Dr. Davis. How are you today? Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited. So we are here today to talk about my favorite drug in the universe, it's such a favorite of mine that in Baltimore, where I work, they call it McMethadone. So, Dr. Davis, why is methadone an awesome choice for us to talk about? Well, it's an inexpensive drug. It's long-acting. Uh, it uh, uh, can be effective when other uh, opioids are not effective. Uh, it has multiple routes of administration uh, that can be used um, so it can be a, a great go-to drug, um, mm-hmm. usually used as second line, but has been reported to be used in first line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think increasingly. I know I'm seeing it being used more first line in hospice. So, Kat, why did we, why don't you explain what we did when, you know, we're a troop of naughty kittens. What did we do and why did we do it? And this, of course, this whole thing is uh, leading to sharing with our listeners our fabulous uh, publication that's published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management on uh, the safe and effective use of methadone. So why don't you clue in our readers on the background? Yeah, and how did we get here? How did this publication come to be after all of the different versions of consensus building that it took? Um, aside from our shared passion for using methadone, um, many of the, them trained by you, <laughs> um, and uh, not, not, no brainwashing, just training. Of course right? not. Um, well, in 2014, I think we were all, um, you know, informed by the American Pain Society in collaboration with College on Problems of Drug Dependence and Heart Rhythm Society. And when they collaborated and brought forth these guidelines of best practices for methadone safety and efficacy, I think um, it, you know, informed a lot of decision-making around methadone and, and how to use it safely. But all of us practicing in pain and palliative care and hospice, especially when you're um, treating patients where long-term survival for our patients changes the goals of care that we have, um, we were all kind of thinking, well, how does this apply to our patients? And, and how ought we um, take these guidelines and extrapolate them to the patients that we care about? Um, that guideline was focused on populations with much longer um, survival, so the risk-benefit looked a lot different than the patients that were usually struggling with making decisions over appropriate use. So in patients where the goals of care have shifted, um, they really need rapid pain relief in a lot of times, and then you wonder how aggressively should we be monitoring these patients. So we were really striving to find the evidence base behind it, and where there was a lack of evidence base, um, some consensus building of experts that have a lot of a um, experience using methadone to say, where there's not strong evidence, um, here's best practice from what we know. So we spent a whole day of 15 interprofessional um, hospice and palliative care experts to kind of really go over the existing data. Um, there were um, physicians, pharmacists, there's a nurse to really weigh in on making sure that it was appropriate for several different practice settings. Um, and there was some very spicy conversation around spicy. it, yes, it was um, spicy. which led to how long it took to really come to consensus on a lot of these things in the paper. So I am 
just I think we're all thrilled to think that we actually got there. Yes. For yes. What, much of what you'll hear us talk about today and what you'll read in the paper. Yeah. I remember a couple times during the meeting, Dr. Davis was sitting next to me, me, me leaning over to him and muttering, fix this for me. <laughs> People were coming to fisticuffs, I think. Yes, yes. So, you know, I think one pretty cool thing right out of the gate is our table one in the paper, which is patient selection for methadone. So I'm going to talk a, very briefly about who I think is a good candidate. Well, maybe I'm not the best person in the world because I think they'd have to be like dead before I'd say maybe they're not. But I think if we look at the things that kind of rose to the top are people with moderate to severe pain. And as Dr. Davis said, particularly as a second line opioid choice. And I think a big one for me is, is they're a first-line regiment just was not getting the job done. Also, even though it's exquisitely rare, somebody who has a true phenanthrene, morphine, allergy, methadone is sufficiently dissimilar that it might be a good choice. I think we all look at methadone or fentanyl for people with significant renal impairment because we have largely inactive metabolites from our friend methadone. Um, one thing I really like, as Dr. Davis already said, it's a long-acting opioid but inherently, not because it's been pharmaceutically altered. And I know in hospice patients, even if they're completely obtunded, we can use the methadone 10 milligram per mil oral solution and put a small amount in the buccal cavity, prop their upper body up about 30 degrees so they won't aspirate, and it's a beautiful thing. Methadone is a very fat-soluble drug, so you do get a substantially more transmucosal absorption than you would with morphine. Uh, but I don't even really care about that because it just kind of really, really slowly trickles down the throat. And sometimes we're using a tenth of an ml, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, half of an ml often, very low doses. I think also methadone is a good choice for people with high opioid tolerance uh, or having side effects from other opioids. And again, because of the intense dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, are people who have a feeding tube. So Dr. Davis, fair balance here, it kills me, but who might be a potentially inappropriate candidate, candidate for methadone? Well, I think it's someone who's older, living alone, uh, that you're worried about them taking their medications, poor cognitive function, uh, without really a responsible caregiver. I think someone with a history of abuse of drug, this is a drug that can have a high fatality rate if, if misused. So you need someone who's really reliable. Uh, you need uh, so someone with uh, a substantial substance use, particularly if they're using poly substances, uh, you can get into trouble with this. Multiple yeah. risk factors, I think, are, are important um, in looking at, at patients. People, for instance, uh, with uh, transplants who may be on immunosuppressive drugs that may influence uh, the pharmacology or on multiple other drugs that may, may in fact prolong the effect of methadone. Um, patients with prolonged QTC intervals, since this drug can produce arrhythmias, may, may not be candidates for this. Um, and individuals who have significant organ dysfunction, not so much uh, kidney failure, but liver failure, may have it in advanced stages of prolonged uh, prolongation of the half-life of the drug. The other uh, is I found that in people who have uh, rapidly changing cognitive function you, uh -huh. near the end of life, in which they can't really participate in um, and scoring their their um, pain severity, that might not be an individual that you uh, want to have on methadone. And, and in uh, clinical practice, I found that people who, for instance, are undergoing blocks 
or having uh, single fraction radiation who may in fact respond rapidly if you're using methadone um, in that group of patients and they have a rapid response to non-pharmacological approaches, you may end up getting into trouble with some um, opioid side effects or respiratory depression uh, if mm-hmm. you've been building a dose of methadone. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's quite a laundry list. I know my good friend Dr. Doug Gorlay from Canada is always saying, um, buprenorphine can take a joke, but methadone has no sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So I think we have very little wiggle room with these patients who may, in fact, be borderline. So, Dr. Walker, before we get into specific comorbid conditions that could alter our decision to use methadone or not, can you give us a picture of what we recommended as a general overview of the risk assessment before starting methadone? Well, I think we started out by all endorsing that it is it's so important to do a risk assessment, um, as it is with every opioid. So I think you'll see that thought process played out in Table 2. Um, this table kind of highlights the risk assessment and things that apply to all opioids, including methadone. And we felt it was important to put that column in there because um, there's some risk assessment that you should be doing with every opioid. So, you know, some of the things that um, Dr. Davis talked about, you know, liver function, like, you want to think about that with every opioid, but we didn't want people to forget that um, methadone is an opioid, so you got to think about that with methadone too. And we also added in things that were specific um, to methadone that is kind of over and above the traditional risk assessment you would do for opioids. So um, that were things like structural heart disease and electrolyte abnormalities. Um, those were things that, you know, you don't always think about hypokalemia when you dose a regular opioid. So those are things to just highlight that people add on. So you know, the paper talks a lot about individualizing it, which we're very good at doing in palliative care. Everything's individualized, right? So um, that's important. And we've already talked about the cognitive status for a patient. As always, history and um, targeted history and physical exam. And as a pharmacist, you, I would be remiss in not mentioning medication reconciliation because in our view, um, as a pharmacist, that is such a crucial part, especially with methadones and we're going to keep you in suspense here because we're going to talk about drug interactions in a few minutes. That's but right. That's a big part of it. But I'm not giving you three weeks to have that conversation. I and certainly that. could use all that time. <laughs> so, Dr. Davis, why don't you talk briefly, if you could, please, about the history of liver disease in a patient when we're thinking about methadone therapy. Yeah. Methadone uh, has a, a metabolite that, um, that really is not considered active, though there is some controversy in, in the literature about that. Uh, and it's relatively safe in mild to moderate liver disease, but it's metabolized by type 1 mixed function oxidase um, uh, enzymes, uh, particularly CYP3A4 uh, and 2B6 and maybe a little 2D, uh, 2D6. So uh, in patients with advanced liver disease, uh, those enzymes may be reduced and you'll actually get a, a fairly long uh, effect of your methadone. So in uh, treating people with liver disease, I think it's, it's obviously starting low, going slow, and you may want to reconsider this drug, particularly if they have a pew class C uh, liver disease. This may not be one that you'll want to choose. Okay, good advice. Well, Dr. Walker, I know we didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, but what do you think about people who do have a history of substance use disorder? 
Yeah, good point. I mean, we this was not the focus or really the scope within the scope of the paper. And the two main things I think we came to terms with is including it just for completeness, completeness sake was um, ideally best practice would be that patients are co-managed by an addiction specialist. But I don't know about everyone else's world, but wow, that's hard to do in palliative care. They're hard to find. Um, but if you have one, absolutely, that's the best way to go. Um, but then we also really wrestled with this, especially in your end-of-life population, about what to do with patients who are using illicit substances. And we recommended in this paper that we, find, we all came to terms that that was a contraindication. So there was a little note in there about, you know, our professional obligation to treat pain, um, but we wrestled mightily with this and what to do with those patients that still are actively using. But, you know, it's really hard with such a dr uh, drug with a risk like methadone to know where you stand if someone's using something illicit on the side. So um, that was the recommendation we put forward in the paper related exactly. to that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, I, I think it's important, too, if, if you're looking at uh, urine toxicologies, that methadone isn't really, you know, in the standard dipstick toxicology. So you really, if you're going to really do urine studies in patients who may have a better prognosis, you're really going to have to order the methadone uh, um, in particular. So it won't be in the standard screening. That's a good point. Thank yeah, you. Great. So I think if I woke up one day and I did not get an email from some listserv that deals with drug therapy about yet another drug that prolongs the QTC, I would probably think that the apocalypse had arrived. So Dr. Davis, talk to me about patients with a history of cardiovascular disease and then perhaps spend a couple of minutes on the whole QTC issue. What is the dealio? Okay. Well, methadone uh, inhibits repolarization uh, by inhibiting the the potassium channel expression uh, that occurs on, um, and as a result, uh, what happens is you get uh, re-entry arrhythmias and what is called torsades de point, um, which is a pretty refractory ventricular tachycardia that often, that, that is managed by magnesium, but is, can be highly fatal. Um, mm -hmm. The QTC monitoring um, is, is recommended by, certainly by the APS and people who have prolonged QTC intervals should be, probably not be considered for methadone. Now, there's a correlation of QTC prolongation with the risk of torsade. So in patients uh, who have QTC intervals, corrected QTC intervals of 450 to 500, you have a moderate risk. Over 500, most people say you probably shouldn't be using methadone, or if they do have that prolongation of the QTC interval uh, on methadone, you ought to reconsider uh, changing them to another drug. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, there, there is an assumption, though, and there is a gap in the knowledge about risks, QTC intervals, and methadone, and, and that particular relationship. So a lot of this is expert opinion, uh, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important safety factor in people who do have a good prognosis. The difficulty mm -hmm. I have with methadone and in patients who are, for instance, on amiodarone, who have very prolonged QTC intervals, um, 
it's hard to know whether it's safe to start it or not, and I generally haven't used it in those patients. Now, does amiodarone protect people from torsades is a real question, and uh, there is no data to suggest that. On the other hand, if methadone is the only drug you have, um, then it's talking about risk benefits with patients. And I had one patient who had a head and neck cancer, and when she was on third-line methadone, probably the only drug that we had left, and her QTC was prolonged. And I sat down and talked with her and said, you know, this is what we're dealing with. If I don't really have another option, but you're at risk for, you know, sudden death. And she basically said to me, well, it's a win-win then. So some people are willing to accept the risks uh, for uh, the benefits of uh, methadone, but it's really important to talk to patients about risks and to tell them why you're getting QTC intervals if you are in the palliative setting of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you hear this total daily dose thrown around, like, oh, if somebody's on methadone less than 30 milligrams a day, it's extremely rare. Do you buy that, that it's really the dose-related effect, and if you're on 30 or milligrams, less less than that a day, it's probably a very, very low risk. There are people with silent QTC uh, prolongation syndromes, inherited syndromes, and they may actually be more sensitive to that. So I don't think you can buy that. Certainly there is a dose relationship to QTC prolongation, but you can actually even see it at lower doses. Okay. What about heart failure patients? Can we use methadone in those folks? Uh, they are at increased risk, um, so that I think, again, they probably should be monitored. So if people have, um, you know, if they have diastolic or systolic heart failure, I think um, they really need probably to be monitored because their risk is higher. Now, why, why they are at increased risk for QTC intervals, not really well clarified mm-hmm. in the literature, and most of that is by epidemiological data. Okay. But the answer is yes. Okay. And you mentioned in the paper that individuals with heart failure have a greater incidence of sleep-disordered breathing. So what are your thoughts on that, whether it is stemming from heart failure? But there are a lot of people who have disordered breathing. Should we use methadone or avoid it in these patients? Well, there, there are... Um, It's kind of a triangle because people with heart failure actually have increased sleep disordered breathing and increased sleep disordered breathing increases the sensitivity to opioids. And certainly methadone has correlated significantly with sleep disordered breathing. Mm -hmm. So uh, in certain studies, as many as 30% and and one study as high as 75% of those patients had sleep disordered breathing or increased apnea hypopnic index. Now, what happens in these individuals is they are actually increased sensitivity to um, uh, hypopnea or apnea at night. So during the day, they may look at you and and not seem to be um, influenced at all from uh, their breathing rates or so. But during sleep, there's an increased uh, dependence on hypoxic drive. Uh, and what happens is during apnea and during the hypopnic episodes, there is uh, um, uh, uh, hypoxia that occurs that leads to arrhythmia. So many of the, the patients, many of these patients may actually have arrhythmias at night and not 
not uh, infrequently the deaths from methadone will occur at night rather than during the day. Mm-hmm. So in someone with sleep disordered breathing, um, this is uh, this is probably not a drug I would use. Now, the methadone will produce both obstructive and central sleep apnea. So you could say, well, let's just throw them on on you know uh, continuous BiPAP or uh, continuous um, uh, positive pressure airway breathing, the positive pressure airway breathing can help with uh, obstructive sleep apnea, but won't really help in, in uh, central sleep apnea. So, mm-hmm. and we don't know whether that will, will prevent opioid deaths by doing that. Uh, so will I feel safe if someone's on CPAP with uh, COPD and sleep disordered breathing and using methadone? Probably not. I, I would still feel a little uncomfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. So you might feel better, but the patient may not, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I've also often heard that, you know, monitoring for worsening snoring is certainly a valid parameter to monitor for methadone toxicity, but I've also heard you don't get snoring as a warning shot with central sleep apnea. Is that true? That's true. It's... Uh... And that's really the difficulty in that. And, and opioids produce a complex sleep disordered breathing. So you get both. You can, in the same patient, get obstructive and central sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, based on everything Dr. Davis and Dr. Walker just said, we did have in the, in the article Table 3, which is our recommendations for ECG monitoring and action steps. And we took an interesting approach. We broke the, the entire patient population in hospice and palliative care into three groups. So we said we would have a high level of vigilance for both baseline and follow-up ECG monitoring for those patients whose goal of care was curative, life-prolonging therapy, full steam ahead. It just happens that palliative care is in the loop and providing some guidance. For those patients, particularly when methadone is used as a first-line opioid, we pretty much recommended going with the American Pain Society recommendations in 2014, getting a baseline EKG if they have positive risk factors, which include things such as what was mentioned, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, impaired liver function, structural heart disease, including congenital heart defects, history of endocarditis or heart failure, and genetic predisposition from patients and families with QT syndrome. Also, anybody who had a prior QTC or 450 or higher or a history suggestive of prior ventricular arrhythmia. And then we have a whole laundry list of consider a baseline EKG with no additional risk factors, QTC less than 450, and then our recommendations, which are very consistent with what Dr. David just said. Think twice before 450 and 499, and probably don't go there at 500 or higher. Then we have our moderate um, level of vigilance, which are people who are going for the curative life-prolonging therapy, but perhaps methadone is the second-line opioid because the first-line options didn't really work out. Or a patient who's more on the hospice boat where we're pretty much just going for the comfort measures or perhaps just palliative care is in charge uh, and potentially using it in that scenario as a first-line opioid where we would instead you know, discuss the risks and benefits with the patient and the family in light of the goals of care. Uh, routine baseline ECG monitoring, not really recommended, but might consider it depending on the patient's baseline risk status and their wishes and their goals of care. Uh, if the decision is made not to get a baseline ECG, I would document it. But if you do get, obtain one, follow the recommendations 
as shown with the high-risk group. And then the last is the low level of vigilance, which are patients clearly who are just in it for comfort measures. Um, we would not recommend an ECG unless there really was a compelling indication, but if you chose to go in that direction to follow the recommendations as above. So I think that should be very helpful to people to figure out, you know, what's the best way to handle this. So skipping uh, a different content just a little bit, Dr. Walker, talk to me about the 80,000 gugabazillion drug interactions with methadone. Okay, so how long do I have? You've got 30 seconds. Okay. Go, girl. <laughs> uh, well, we could stay here all day long because there's so many, um, which is why it makes the job of a positive pharmacist so much fun. So basically, let's break it down into two things. So um, this, uh, the paper, we really were hoping that this would be a good resource, and you'll find some really good resources. There's a table here that's available online. It's not part of the printing because it's so long. It was mm -hmm. just like a scroll. Um, but we basically focused on um, kind of describing the issues with drug interactions globally and then really giving the readers the evidence base for um, what you see for like the specific drugs that are, that are commonly um, interacting with methadone. So you look at the ones that are um, opioid receptor-mediated adverse effects, and then non-opioid receptor-mediated adverse effects. So when you look at ones that are um, associated with the opioid receptor, you're thinking of, you know, sedation, respiratory failure. When you're looking at the non-opioid receptor-mediated adverse effects, that's where you see QTC prolongation, torsades, sudden cardiac death. So basically, when drug interactions cause it, like an additive pharmacodynamic effect, um, that's when you think of things like when you add in a benzo with using methadone, which is like a big no-no, right? Because you're going to add, mm -hmm. it's not a good look to have this increased risk of sedation, sleep disorder, breathing. Um, so you'll see through there, there's a, lot, a big focus on uh, medications for their QTC, QTC um, interval prolongation. Um, the most commonly reported medications went to the FDA database were um, HIV meds, uh, benzos, there was ceftriaxone, uh, trimethoprim, some antibiotics. That was about 42% of the common drug interactions. Um, we included a reference for a QTC interval table. Um, and some of the major enzymes that Dr. Davis covered already were the um, 2B6, 2C19, 3A4, and 2D6. So um, I like some of the other um, pieces in here. I think that would help, um, especially when you're looking for primary palliative care people to be thinking about this, are just some pearls in there, like, for instance, uh, non-medication-related interaction, like cigarette smoking, which I think sometimes we don't always ask about. Um, but that can induce 2B6, so that's um, an important one because that's primarily responsible for methadone levels and clearance. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, even when someone stops smoking, it can come to um, normal levels and then cause a normal. So you, even if someone stops smoking, you're like, hooray, then that might change your methadone levels. So essentially... The main two recommendations we made from this section, um, aside from giving an awesome table for reference, I hope people will use it, is that when you start or stop medications that impact methadone levels, you really need to do a full assessment. And um, when you start or stop medications that have additive clinical effects, such as being a sedative, um, affecting breathing, and QT amyloid, so both of those should require getting out your magnifying glass, and really going through the med list um, carefully. So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the kind of summation. Mm -hmm. How'd I do? I well, you went way over your 30 seconds, <laughs> but it was good stuff. So I agree. I think people forget to reconsider what's the, the scoop when you stop medications and someone continues on methadone. Um, and I, I'm always talking about my little tip of when I'm on the phone and I'm driving around the beltway and doing my nails and eating a donut and somebody calls me, 
for a methadone recommendation, I ask about the three A's because I'm really concerned about drugs that will inhibit the metabolism of methadone. So I ask about amiodarone, antidepressants, and anti-infectives. If I get a no to all three, then I know that's covered a, a good chunk of the serious offenders. Uh, but if I get a yes, then we have to drill down a little more deeply. And it's interesting when we consider things like fluconazole for thrush. We do know that 80% of the time if someone has thrush, one dose of fluconazole, 150 or 200 will kick it. Now, it may take four days to see that clinical improvement, but it's a strong 3A4 inhibitor, and if someone's on methadone, if they're just taking one dose, I don't fool with it. But if the prescriber's going to put them on fluconazole for a week, and the patient was really, really comfortable in their methadone, I may, in fact, empirically reduce their dose by about 25 to 30% uh, just to be safe. I think that's so important. Well, I think what, you know, everybody's been waiting for, breathless excitement, is the dosing recommendation. So, Kat, why don't you talk to us about uh, the interesting approach that we took to opioid-naive patients, because you know we are rebels and we do in our heart love methadone first line. We kind of do. Um, although, I'll say we did this with a little bit of a soft hand here because of um, how we roll and being pretty cautious, but also... Um, I think you'll see using methadone in opioid new patients is controversial. It is. Um, so I think one of the things we put right out there is like this is not garden variety methadone dosing. You you know put it in the hands of experienced practitioners. Um, you know the European Association for Palliative Care recommends that methadone may be used as a step three opioid. In some of these circumstances, they were like, okay, at least there's someone out there who's they're with us. We're moving to you, Germany. <laughs> So, I mean, um, APS, when they say opioid naive patients shouldn't exceed 7.5 a day, so that's like 2.5 three times a day. Um, so we have, there's some data like um, Solipeter demonstrating that you can use low-dose methadone, and I think that's where we went with this, is to say um, we recommended for our group that you could go um, 2 to 7.5, and it allows for that very low-dose methadone because we know that you can sometimes give patients a one milligram by mouth, even once a day sometimes, but we mm -hmm. put the low-dose being one, twice, one milligram twice a day, um, and that they should not – we both agree. So that's a little bit of a difference from what they recommended. We uh, accounted for an allowance to go a little bit lower in the dose for mm -hmm. an opioid naive patient, which is important in our population because um, of the second point where we – both agreed, both the APS guidelines and our guidelines would agree um, that they should not be escalated quickly. Mm -hmm. So this is no more than five milligrams a day um, and over a long period of time to allow for steady state because in our population it takes so much longer. So methadone has a steady state of, you know, five to 130 hours, but in our patients it can be even longer than that. Right, right. Um, so that really uh, start low, go slow applies here for sure. So I think we allowed a little bit more um, leverage or leniency than yeah. the APS guidelines in that area. And like Dr. Davis was talking about liver disease, that could take two weeks to get to steady state. Would you agree, Dr. Davis? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and I, I think, think with with organ function that you you'll probably be even slower in titrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our guidance was five to seven days, but yeah, with that you could even wait two yeah. weeks before you kind of rely on your breakthrough. Another thing I like that we did that was consistent with APS is we took people who were on up to sixty milligrams of oral morphine equivalent. And we threw those in the opioid naive bucket, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so it's kind of halfway between opioid naive and opioid tolerant patients. Mm -hmm. But those low dosers, we kept those in the opioid naive dosing bucket. 
And then when we look at opioid tolerant patients, so what we're referring to here is people getting greater than 60 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalents. We've said if they were between 60 and 199 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents, and the patient was less than 65 years old, we would do a 10 to 1 conversion. Every 10 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent would be one milligram of oral methadone. If they were on 200 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent or higher per day and or over 65 years old, we'd be recommending a 20 to 1 conversion. Now granted, the first thing somebody will say is that's not evidence-based. Yes, yes, I know. But remember, this guideline is to give practitioners in hospice and palliative care um, a harbor of safety where we can be reach an effective dose as quickly as possible but not harm the patient. Dr. Davis, do you want to elaborate on that? Because this was a big deal for us. Yeah, I think that this is a drug that can produce pain relief fairly quickly. And the thing that I really worry about is if someone gets analgesia with the first dose, you're really... in trouble. Yeah, the patient may be dancing, but I have great fears. And so I think this is a, needs close monitoring in that sense. So starting low, going slow is really very important with this drug. Absolutely. And perhaps you could keep on going and talk to us a little bit about methadone as an adjuvant analgesic. I know often we will use the strategy when a hospice patient is very close to the end of the road, but they're kind of a red-hot mess. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, the original work on this, uh, the non-cross tolerance and, and the fact that methadone may add to morphine, for instance, came from Bonn and Pasternak in 2002, where in mice models they found that uh, by adding methadone to morphine, they had synergy uh, that occurred. And it wasn't related to the NMDA receptor. It was probably because methadone binds to different types of mu subtype receptors than morphine does. And so there have been several papers that have added low doses of methadone to morphine and patients who are not responding well to morphine and have demonstrated responses in about half of those patients. Um, so it, it is one of the things that has recently occurred, I think, over the last four to five years is now using methadone as an adjuvant. Mm -hmm. What kind of dose would you start in somebody who maybe had three to five days left to live? Would you continue their current opioid regimen and just sprinkle a little methadone on top? Um, yeah, I, I think that what I would do is, is start with 2.5 a couple times a day, three times a day. Um, so I, have, I actually have a woman in, in the hospital just to take a, a um, point of view who uh, is dying from her rectal cancer, and she's on hydromorphone as a continuous infusion and was on oxycodone, not able to swallow. And she was on 80 milligrams of oxycodone uh, twice a day. So what I did is switched her to methadone five milligrams three times a day uh, mm -hmm. and, con and continued her hydromorphone. So I think it, it's certainly related to what opioid dose they're on. But I think starting, again, low... Uh, some people have used as low as two to four milligrams twice daily as an adjuvant. Right. Uh, so um, we have evidence that it probably is effective in a subgroup of patients. We don't have a lot of information about what dose to start with. So, again, I think starting low is probably the thing to do. 
And I suspect it's probably when it is efficacious, thanks to the mechanism of action of being an NMDA receptor antagonist. Do you concur? I think that's part of it. I think part of it too is it plays a different. Uh, it plays differently on mu receptors, on a different subtypes. So it's like playing the organ. You get a, a, a um, you, you get an octave, and you get uh, multiple chords that you can play in mm-hmm. the pain. You know, as far as pain go. is concerned. So I think that that's that's part of how it works too. Yeah. And if I could just pause and give a shout-out to your dear friend, Dr. Pasternak, who just passed away. Uh, I'm sure he is in heaven right now arguing with God about 25 different flavors of mu receptors. So um, very appreciative of his life's work there. Hey, yeah. uh, I'd like to just, you know, very much so, I'd like to spend just a moment on alternate routes of administration for methadone. Certainly methadone comes as a 5, 10, and 40 milligram tablet, although the 40 is reserved for methadone clinics. It does come in three concentrations of oral solutions. In hospice, we routinely use the 10 milligram per ml because we can use it as an intense thought in the buccal cavity, as I shared earlier. Also, pharmacists, God bless them, the ones who compound, that's too much like cooking for this girl, they can make rectal suppositories, and the dosing would be one-to-one with oral methadone. And, of course, we have parenteral methadone formulations. We have a preservative-free and one with a preservative. So because methadone is about 70 to 80% bioavailable, even though it is that highly bioavailable, I should say, we do still recommend cutting your total daily dose in half when you move to the IV route of administration. However, when you're going from IV to PO, I would not multiply by two because of that high bioavailability and there's great variability, I may add. We recommend multiplying your total IV daily dose by 1.3 when you reestablish going to the oral. And just to point out that the preservative formulation, uh, is, is the clorbutanol really increases the risk of QT prolongation all by itself, that naughty kitten. And then, of course, you would use the preservative-free if you really wanted to explore neuraxial use of methadone, which is way beyond the scope of our paper. So, Dr. Walker, we have come all over. We've beaten this to death. What do you think about monitoring? Well, that is a big part of what we were talking about in this paper when we went through with the group and said, so what are we going to do? We went through the level of vigilance, and I think you talked a little bit about how to monitor for EKGs. Um, we also talked about caregiver monitoring. I don't mm-hmm. know if you want to talk about that um, at this point, but that was a big part of our patient yes. education section as well. Well, you know, and I think you and I, with you being primarily an inpatient palliative care practitioner and me being the hospice girl, we have had many conversations about it's really difficult for you and your team to start methadone or Dr. Davis in his practice and send them out the door day two because as Dr. Davis said, you do not want to be a rock star on day two because if you do that on day five, you're going to jail. So how does your team handle that when you want to start methadone, but you really don't want to keep them in the hospital five days? Yeah, that's really hard because sometimes you don't know. Can we commit to five days? We're not always sure. Um, So, yeah, it's hard unless you have someone that is trustworthy to hand off to that you feel like will be able to continue the plan of care. It is a very large challenge. So um, typically we look for hospice partnerships when we're looking for a hospital-to-hospice transfer. Um, there are not as many partners in the community that are as comfortable taking a handoff for methadone dosing and titration. Mm-hmm. We offer to be available to you know, consult, but I think the challenge is if they're going to a hospice scenario, then you are more comfortable if they have a protocol in place to do that, and you can talk a little bit more about that, what that looks like to make us so comfortable. But if they're not and they're going home and 
you know, their PCPs like, yeah, I'll see them in a week. You're oh, like, well, that's, no. not, that's not good enough. Like, mm-hmm. You really need every day during this getting to steady state period. So then you would need the only t- cases we really feel comfortable doing that is, is a very, very savvy um, caregiver that we can talk to. So we'll talk a little bit about the patient education mm-hmm. section. Um, but you really want to be convinced that someone is laying eyes on them, knowing what to look for, and knowing for signs of when that study state hits, what's going mm-hmm. on with the methadone, and being Definitely. able to call yeah, them. We've been very fortunate having a nurse navigator in our outpatient area. So we could start someone in, in the house, give the education, and then have our nurse navigator make those calls on a daily basis if they're not going to hospice. So I think, yeah, so having, having a nurse navigator who can then, who's very savvy about methadone and can check up on the family and see how things are going, uh, it adds a, a, you know, a safety net to the use of this mm-hmm. or when you're changing from one service to another. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think the, you... the, the, the other issue, and Kat may uh, want to address this, is methadone on a palliative unit and methadone on a non-palliative unit. Now, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, we didn't like using methadone um, in-house unless we had nurses that were pretty savvy about giving it uh, and could recognize toxicities. And that. So uh, we felt much more comfortable actually giving it on the unit, and um, which actually gave us a, the ability to use different dosing strategies. So, Kat, I don't know how you guys handle that in the inpatient unit. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So we actually yeah. only have, we have uh, two two hospitals with hospice uh, units or, or hospice beds. Uh, but we don't have a palliative unit. So I'm um, jealous of you for that because I agree, using it on the you know, regular hospital unit, we are very careful about who's going to be uh, getting the nurses up to speed. But then you know when shift change happens, who's going to come on the next shift, you never know. So um, it, is a little bit, it is a little bit of a challenge. And that's why we're, we're fairly hesitant to do it on the inpatient side as well. Um, another thing we realized too is that some of our hospitals um, don't have different dosage formulations of methadone available. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. As far as the nurse's comfort level, though, in this area, which since we practice in Baltimore, um, our nurses have seen a lot of methadone, so they're not worried about it, but it's more of that they've seen so much of it that they're not worried about it. Mm-hmm. So we're usually having to bring it to their attention, like, okay, this is not your normal substance use disorder, methadone, once-a-day treatment. This is We need to actually pay attention to this. So. So you're absolutely right. I think in the hospital floor, we're, we're pretty cautious about that as well. Definitely. So what we've set up in hospice is when we start a patient on methadone, we have a requirement that the hospice nurse visit the patient every day for the first five days, and we have an actual suggested monitoring protocol that we use. So, for example, certainly looking at therapeutic effectiveness, assessing the pain. Uh, we'll talk about education next, but an important part of the education is explaining to patients that methadone is like climbing the stairs of a staircase, and it's going to take you four to five to six days to get to the top of the staircase, so you do have to use your breakthrough medication, which is a real challenge in sometimes in a facility where we often know that PRN stands for patient receives nothing, so that's another whole conversation. The nurse certainly will explore therapeutic effectiveness, so pain severity ratings and the ability to perform their activities of daily living, and looking at potential toxicity, so the respiration slowed or irregular, apnea. We do ask about snoring. 
um, altered mental status or vision changes, looking at their eyes, looking at their pupils. Uh, we use a sedation rating scale, and then all the other traditional opioid adverse effects such as confusion and nausea. We always ask that they track any changes in the medication regimen, as Kat was just describing, because of the drug interactions. Um, their ability to swallow. Um, and then I think another really important thing is our nurse will spend a lot of time educating the caregiver in the home. And one thing we tell them is every two hours during waking hours, we want you to stop what you're doing and go lay eyeballs on the patient. So are they becoming increasingly sleepier? Is it harder and harder to wake them up? If you don't see methadone toxicity coming, it's because you are not looking. So we really partner with the family to get this done. We do also have an exception of that a patient is in an excellent caregiving situation. The nurse can maybe uh, skip one or two of those five days if they can call and speak to that reliable caregiver, professional or a layperson, and go through the laundry list. So Kat, what else do you want to add about patient education and family education? Well, you know, I think the topic that we wrestled with the most in this section within our group was naloxone. Mm -hmm. And you can see it's um, carefully worded in here, which we went through several different iterations of how strongly or not strongly to word this, but um, I think the main point to how we came to consensus on this is that um, it makes sense to have an action plan and that that action plan is individualized. So um, that may include naloxone, but I think that what a lot of people were worried about, rightfully so, is that um, patients that are actively dying look sometimes very similar to patients that are um, having an overdose or steady uh, situation as they're getting into steady state or other reasons. Um, so changing in breathing, confusion, sedation, like, wow, that looks a lot like, and you would not want someone giving naloxone to an actively dying patient. That's not a good way to leave this earth is in um, withdrawing from opioid use when you're um, hopefully <laughs> controlled with pain. Um, so I think we talked about having a a written and oral communication plan, having an action plan saying these are what to look at and here's what to do if you see it, who to call, um, you know, holding the dose until you are able to talk with someone um, and what to monitor for. So I think we added it in there with that kind of caveat around it because mm -hmm. I think we know of a lot of health systems and regions and states um, that are kind of have that give patients naloxone and you know, in our health system, it automatically prints out with, along with any opioid order. Um, so it was something we felt like was important to address. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think the other thing is to look at, at the respiratory pattern. So chain stoking uh, is not an opioid-induced breathing disorder, but people will have some periods of apnea, then they, you know, they increase their breathing rate and then diminish it so they have this waxing and waning breathing pattern. That's not an opioid-related breathing pattern. Uh, and so you, ne you need to really instruct families that that's really part of the dying process and not related to the methadone. If you see quantal breathing where people are skipping an inspiratory um, uh, beat, so to speak, just like a Mobitz 2 heart block, that may, in fact, be an opioid-induced breathing pattern. So we use breathing patterns to help as far as education of families and adjusting opioid doses. That brings up an excellent point, Dr. Davis, because in the state of California, they have passed a law that anyone who's on an opioid above a certain amount, which is pretty darn low, uh, or perhaps also on a benzo, automatically has to have a prescription for Narcan. And they did not do a carve-out for hospice. So 
I know I get frequently get a call from a hospice nurse saying, I'm sitting here looking at the patient and I'm not sure if he is fixing to die or if he is opioid overdose, and I don't, I'm very reluctant to give the next dose. So if we have skilled nurses who struggle with this, we're really up the creek if we're giving this nasal Narcan to a family member saying, if they look like they're opioid overdose, go ahead and slam them with a full dose of Narcan, and then we're really going to be in a, in a, a pickle, aren't we? Well, and you wonder, yeah. like, are they familiar with checking for pinpoint pupils, and are, they, right. are there other education going on around that, yeah. Yeah. not just the breathing? Yeah, the, yeah, so the pattern's helpful, but the other problem, obviously, with Narcan is, you know, its half-life is a half-hour and methadone's is hours. So you'll get a response to Narcan if, it's, if it is related to methadone, but then they'll go back into their respiratory depression. So it may be, and we've had to on um, in the inpatient wards when I was at Cleveland, occasionally I have to give a continuous infusion of Narcan. Bye in right. patients who have uh, who had respiratory problems with uh, with methadone so it's it's not a one one shot does it and you can you know give it and forget it you've got to come right. back and monitor that patient and, and I think that's difficult for families to do Absolutely. so that, that makes me very concerned Kat any last patient education points or advice you'd like to stress yeah I think um, that was an important one the, uh, the only other one that I think we um, thought was important to address that doesn't always get played into other guidelines because our patients are uh, near a lot of them nearing death is the importance of disposal um, so anyone with an opioid should be you know counseling patients and giving an opioid should be counseling families on safe storage. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is kind of a best practice across the board. But in our populations, we often do have to talk about disposal. You have disposal when you change doses, but then also after a patient dies. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's something that we mentioned in here um, as far as take-back programs, flushing down the toilet, mixing with impalatable solutions. So I think substances. I think that's something to keep in mind if you're developing patient edu caregiver education on any opioid, but much, especially methadone. Very good. Because the danger in sharing it or having that passed on is much greater than yeah. you, know, you would think with other opioids. I always say you don't store your money on the kitchen table. Don't keep your medicine there either. And, of course, we all know what happens when a visitor says, thank your restroom. They're checking out your medicine cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Davis, any last comments from you as we wrap up? No, this has been great. It has been great. I'd like to thank Dr. Davis and Dr. Walker for their awesome assistance in recording this podcast. So the paper, again, is titled Safe and Appropriate Use of Methadone in Hospice and Palliative Care, Expert Consensus White Paper. I'd like to thank the authors, Drs. Walker and Davis, of course, Dr. Eduardo Barrera, Akila Reddy, Judy Pace, Casey Malat, Michelle Lachman, Charles Wellman, Shelley Saul-Peters, Nina Benben, uh, James Ray, Bernard LaPointe from Canada, and Dr. Roger Chow. Boy, that reads like a list of rock stars, don't you think? Oh, honored to be part of the group. Absolutely. So it's the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. It will be published hard copy in March of this year. Uh, but I will put on our website the link that's good for a few more weeks to get the, the full text article free. So thank you again to my guests. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2019, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, or the link to get the full text article for the next few weeks, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.
Hello.